Supercharged with Ali Geary on RTE Radio 1. Hello, you're very welcome to Supercharged. We have a busy show lined up for you all this evening. We'll be opening up a conversation about bipolar disorder. What exactly is it? How to identify the signs and what the treatments are. I'll also chat with a respiratory physician and we're going to get some advice for our immune and respiratory health because lots of people have been sick with flu and COVID and other respiratory complaints. We've all heard the stories. Like I had a touch of flu over Christmas myself and it wiped me out. New Year's was gone. Even early January I wasn't feeling myself. And I'm sure many of you are the same. So this evening, we'll get some suggestions about how to avoid or manage any respiratory illnesses in the coming months as we approach spring because it is on the horizon finally. We'll also discuss some interesting health stories of the week later in the show and there'll be a special fitness tip of the week too. Now if you have any questions for our experts or if you just want to get in touch with your comments, you can text in at 51551 or email us at supercharged at rte.ie. Now, I was looking at some information on irishpsychiatry.ie before the show and I was actually shocked, and I mean shocked, to learn that one in a hundred people develop bipolar disorder at some stage during their lives. Like One in a hundred is quite a high figure. And one of those people, Arlene Bailey, has kindly come in to share her story. Now, just as a trigger warning, there may be references to self-harm and suicide within her story. Joining me now is Arlene Bailey, who only discovered in her 40s that her mental health issues were caused by bipolar disorder. Arlene, thank you so much for joining us to share your story on Supercharged. Firstly, can you explain in your own words what bipolar disorder is? Okay, so it is firstly a very serious mental health condition. Um, It's a mood disorder, basically, that causes a person to fluctuate from high moods, say mania to lows and extreme lows in some cases. There are two different kinds as far as I'm aware. I I mean, I'm not an expert on it. I just know my story. But I suffer from uh, bipolar disorder too, Mm -hmm. which is a slightly um, less aggressive, shall we say, uh, version of bipolar, Mm -hmm. but it's not as extreme, say, as bipolar one. So my highs wouldn't be so highs and my lows wouldn't be um, that low that I have, say, ended up in hospital. It's just a little bit more of a kind of uh, control old version but still very serious of course and going back to your own personal story like when was the first time you remember experiencing problems relating to your mental health I would say about 15 I was 15 years of age and I suppose that's a tricky time for everybody you know the hormones when you're a teenager kick in and um, I knew there was something else I'd feel like very low a lot of the times and I couldn't pinpoint why there wasn't anything there was no external factors there was nothing really Um, I had an idyllic childhood and a great family and Mm -hmm. I couldn't pinpoint something that was triggering this but I knew there was something brewing and like, how did you and how does any teenager sum, sum up the courage to ask for help? Like, in your situation, like, how did that come about? I didn't ask for help, Anna. OK. Um, I muddled through and I remember at one point, I, I'll be very honest with you mm-hmm. here, I took a handful of pills. I tried to end my life. And um, I think from there I was like, right, OK, this is where I should look for help. But I was too afraid to. At that point in my life, and I mean, I'm 45 now, so yeah. at 15. And what, what were you afraid of? Was it was it judgment or the fear of what it might be? I, I thought I'd get in trouble. 
You know, that really? was really where my head was at at the time. Yeah. I thought, look, don't shed light on this. Don't draw attention to it. Just get mm. on with it now. Move on. I didn't want to to draw attention to the fact that there was something different with me. And and as you went along down that road, then, as you said, kind of, you know, getting along as, as you could best do. At what point in did help come? And what type of help was it? Um, I suppose in my 20s, I started to seek professional help. So mm-hmm. I went to see psychotherapists. I saw counsellors. I was very briefly put on uh, antidepressants. I came off them very soon because I didn't think they were making any difference. Mm-hmm. And of course, they wouldn't because the problem was deeper than just the need for an antidepressant. Of course, my mm-hmm. mood at times was seriously elevated and an antidepressant, of course, is just going to, you know, it's going to mess with that. You need to be properly and accordingly medicated. So I wasn't. I stopped taking the meds. I um, I used to self-harm. I remember one time in Nace Hospital, I had an appointment for physio and a nurse saw that I had cuts on my arms. And I said, oh, the, the cat scratched me. OK, so trying to make up the excuses to yeah, hide it. Yeah, ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. But again, at that time... We didn't talk about mental health mm-hmm. and the discussion around mental health is only it, it's it's really current now because people are, you know, they have the bottle now to speak out mm-hmm. and so many people are affected by it. But then you didn't. And like as a musician and a singer, you are now so yeah. brilliantly, you know, how did you, you cope with it in that lifestyle? See, that's a crazy lifestyle anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it comes with late nights and alcohol fueled parties and... <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really. I'm very boring. Um, I was all over the place. I toured the world. I did stints in the States, the Middle East, uh, lived in England for a while. I um, I was all over the place. So there was no routine. My environment wasn't very, very helpful, mm-hmm. you know, at the time. And like, how bad did it get? Um, I made another attempt in my life um, in my 20s. And I was taken into a hospital in Manchester. Um, they let me out pretty much after a conversation with a doctor, um, which in itself is worrying. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I powered through. I got mm-hmm. on with it. I just, I, I kept my head down. I, um, You've almost accepted that this was just part and parcel of your life. Yeah, yeah. And I was told I suffered from depression. I was also told randomly one time that I had issues with rage. I couldn't make sense of that. But the lowest point, I think, Anna, was to answer your question, um, and I've never actually said this publicly before, but I tried to take control of a car that somebody else was driving and drive it into a wall, which is bizarre. It's, it, it sounds just yeah. insane to say it out loud, but that's that's where I got. And for a lot of people listening, I'm sure that sometimes when your life is spiralling out of control, you turn to things that you can control. So you turn to things like the gym, yeah. you know, alcohol to, I suppose, to control those things yeah. and so much else you couldn't control. Yeah, so I I started to train pretty intensely. But prior to that, I controlled food. OK. So I thought, look, if I can't control other things in my life, by God, I can control this. Yeah. Um, and it's a weird kind of, it's a weird mindset to have. But I mean, I dropped to a size four at one point. I was so thin. I claimed I was fine. I was in the whole of my mm-hmm. health, but clearly I wasn't. Um, and somewhere along the line, I got clued in enough to go speak to a personal trainer who helped me and devised, she devised a programme for me. And I ended up getting into the competing side of things. Mm-hmm. So um, I was very proud of the fact that I placed third at uh, a competition in Limerick for bikini fitness. So mm-hmm. that kind of 
um, in one way helped with my mental health, but also I think it was it was driven by the mania. I knew it wasn't stemming from a place like a normal place at all. So um, I think the major thing then was when my dad passed away. So it was 2018 and he died suddenly. Mm-hmm. And um, sorry, it's a tough one no, to talk no, about. No, I can absolutely, yeah. I can completely you can understand relate, yeah. because, you know, when something like that shakes your world, it it can sometimes give you perspective or maybe be forced to, to look within too. Yeah. So I said to myself, you know what? Life is too short. If you want to eat the bread and drink the wine, do it. As part of my, you know, living for today approach mm-hmm. and and wanting to be well, I decided to seek help once and for all. So I went to my GP and I said, look, there's more to this than depression. There's mm-hmm. more to this than low moods. There's times mm-hmm. I find myself um, overthinking things and doing crazy, like weird. I, there was weird behaviour that would happen with me. And people used to say, is she on drugs? And I, like, I'm not on drugs. I don't take drugs. But like my, erratic yeah, behavior. erratic behaviour and race and thoughts when I would be hypomanic, which is what I am with bipolar too. It's mm. not it's not total mania where I completely go off the, the scale, but it's it's a kind of um, the condition means that then I'm uh, awake all night. I'm I could literally paint the walls of the studio here right now for you. I'm wired, mm-hmm. but it's not comfortable. It's not um, it's an energy that um just feels uncomfortable yeah. and distressful. It's not necessarily an elation or a happiness. It's not. Okay. It can be. It comes with that as well, I suppose. Um, but no, all in all, it's um, it's just makes for an uncomfortable life, to say the least. Of course. Yeah. And like, how long did it take to, to get the diagnosis? And, and when you did, how did that feel? Um, I was very upset when I was told, but I knew it was coming because I'd done my research. Mm-hmm. So I was referred to a clinic um, and I saw a couple of different psychiatrists and they basically got me to devise like a mood diary, shall we say, and keep check of how I was feeling at any given time. And if I was feeling low, how long it went, the mood lasted for. If I was feeling high, how long that lasted for. They also started to trial me with uh, particular medications. And that was kind of disastrous as well, because um, I would take something and I would be like a zombie Mm -hmm. because it's trial and error, you know. Of course, manage the dosage. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But after a a careful kind of number of months with them monitoring everything and me going in for regular appointments. One of them sat with me and said, we believe you have bipolar disorder um, and bipolar too. Like, how do you think it would have changed your life if you'd got an earlier diagnosis? Like, this is now, you've experienced this in your 20s and in your 30s, only now in your 40s that you got this diagnosis. I suppose everything would have been different, really. It wouldn't have been like a ticking time bomb all this time. Mm-hmm. So really, having seen the other side of it and knowing that there's help available for people and medications work, and, you know, there there shouldn't be a stigma attached to mental health. We're, we're slowly but surely getting out, getting away from that, you know. Um, I urge people to seek help and get out there and tell somebody, go to a doctor, go to a friend, a family member. And if you think there's something not right, seek the help. It's there for us, you know. Mm-hmm. I now see that if I had been 15 years of age and somebody had taken me to one side and said, oh, we figured out what this is. There's a name, mm-hmm. you know, there's a description we can we can medicate accordingly. Sure, it would have been life changing for me. And has anything else helped you um, to manage the condition aside from medication? Uh, my music, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. I love to get on stage and perform. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything to do with that, uh, any sort of performance, studio work, I love. Um, the gym, of course, is a, a brilliant outlet for anyone suffering with me- mental health issues. So I go to the gym regularly now and everything is balanced or as best it can be. What way do people react when you tell them you have bipolar disorder? I think the first thing that got to me was the, the fear in people's eyes. I think they used to think, oh, she's... Really? 
she's a liability. So if she has this mental health condition, she's liable to, I don't know, climb across the table and hit mm-hmm. me a box. <laughs> you know, that there are uh, people, people assume that, that mental health issues render somebody different to the mm. next. It, it's often it, a lack of education or even awareness or what it is too, I would imagine. Yeah. I've got used to now being vocal about it. So I speak out and I'm not afraid and I'm not embarrassed. And that's what I Brilliant. want to encourage everyone else to, to do. So if people have, a you know, an issue with it, then they need to maybe do the research. And, Absolutely. And hopefully shows yeah. like this will, will help make people aware and, and, and give the necessary education. Lastly, Arlene, what would you say to other people that might be recognising some of the symptoms in your story? Again, as I said, seek yeah. help. Yeah. And you, I mean, because when you think about your life, you know, you're, you're singing, you know, you're, you're fully functioning, you're living a, a full life, you know, so there, you know, it is, it is possible. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, I get up and I, you know, I put myself out there and mm-hmm. I enjoy what I do. Music is my, my world. And um, thanks to, as I said, modern medicine and counselling and therapy, I've discovered that there there is life. Thank God that any attempt that I, I made or cry for help when it came to, um, you know, the whole idea of, of maybe committing suicide or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever my head was at at the time, thank God that didn't work. And to anybody feeling low, as I said, please seek help. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow's a new day. And everything can look brighter. And there is support there. You just, again, sometimes the hardest thing is asking for them, but they are there. Arlene Bailey, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. I've no doubt you're going to help countless people listening, other those that may be affected or those family members um, close to them. If anyone listening wants to find out more information about bipolar, you can visit aware.ie. Now, coming up, we'll talk to an expert about how to identify bipolar disorder and how best to cope with it. Welcome back. We're talking about bipolar disorder and Arlene Bailey just spoke to us about her personal story. Messages have been coming in off the back of it. We've one here. Thank you, Arlene. It's a pleasure to listen to your story. It's all about creating awareness that we really need. Another one just in. Hi, Anna. An extended family member suffers from bipolar disorder and other mental health issues. It has taken enormous toll on family members over the years, mentally, emotionally, physically. There is a constant worry and concern for this person's well-being and what the future holds for them. There appears to be considerable lack of support, albeit some is due to the person person's lack of trust in the system to seek further help. It's a terrible situation for them, but thankfully over the past few years due to medication, they're in a better place. It's a long road. And to be honest, I'm still trying to educate myself about bipolar. And it's such a difficult place to be in and it is about educating. Like I put up a poll on my Instagram page during the week just to gauge people's understanding of what bipolar is. And almost 70% admitted that they didn't really know. So here to educate us all further is Dr. Larkin Martin, President of the College of Psychiatrists of Ireland and a consultant general adult psychiatrist. Welcome, Larkin. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Supercharged. Can you can you talk to us in terms of bipolar disorder? What are the, the possible symptoms? I suppose to put it in context, you mentioned already, first of all, that it's quite a common disorder. It's about one in a hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what used to be called manic depression. And fundamentally, it's a mood disorder. Uh, and the main mm-hmm. symptoms would be 
uh, significant changes in mood. And you would have noticed that in talking to Arlene. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking here about just, you know, someone who is a bit moody and a bit up and down or somebody, for example, who might have an emotionally unstable personality disorder. We're talking about sustained, significant alterations in mood that go on for weeks or possibly months. And they can be very, very severe. Um, and they can have a huge disruption on, on somebody's life. And I suppose to split it in two, we could look at, first of all, the, the elated part, what used to be called the, the, the manic part of manic depression. Um, and we could either have mania or, or uh, hypomania, which is a slightly milder version of it. And the sort of symptoms we're experiencing there, first of all, would be a lifting of mood, a kind of an excessive lifting of mood. Sometimes it's quite euphoric, excessively happy, but it can also be irritable or, or angry. Um, but coupled with that, then you get an increase in energy, a lack of sleep, maybe not eating, um, maybe a huge distractibility. So people might feel they're being very productive and they aren't. Um, and then beyond that, you'll have people engage and reckless behaviour and you might remember um, uh, uh, the, the, the mention there with your, your previous um, with, Arlene, uh, with, yeah. with Arlene exactly sorry with Arlene where she mentioned about taking the car mm-hmm. so reckless impulsive behaviour and people will do things like for example um, spend money they wouldn't normally spend or wouldn't have engage in sexual activity that they wouldn't normally do um, and at its most extreme then they can develop for example beliefs that aren't true such as um, maybe believing that they have special powers and we call that delusions. Uh, And the danger there of course is if somebody believes they have special powers they may act on them. Mm -hmm. So if you believe you can fly you may jump out the top window of a building. Um, And then they may even develop things like hallucinations which Mm -hmm. is hearing or seeing things that aren't there. So you know quite a disruptive um, episode as you can imagine. And and what about the low then? The low then is is very similar to what we would generally refer to as as depression or unipolar depression. Um, So people obviously would have quite low mood and that can become very low at times Um, and associated with that then is you know deterioration in energy, sleep, appetite, You'll get weight loss, inability to enjoy things you'd normally enjoy, uh, irritability, withdrawal, not functioning properly at home or at work. And then at its most extreme, you may get thoughts or or actions of self-harm and perhaps even suicide. And again, you can also get these delusions and hallucinations, which would have, you know, a different content, a very depressive content, but still quite significant. And like if bipolar hasn't been diagnosed and there are other mental illnesses, I suppose, um, evident or, or present, like how can medical practitioners treat one and not the other? Like if you haven't yet understood that, you know, bipolar disorder could be there. I suppose the first thing is to try to identify what the disorder or disorders are. And mm-hmm. that's done by an extensive history, first of all, from the person themselves, what we would refer to as a mental state examination. And then obviously very important would be getting what we call collateral history. So that's history from family, friends, GPs and so on. And then with consent, it might even be from school or, for, or from work. Um, so it's a question of, of looking at it clinically, piecing together the various parts. Now, many people with bipolar disorder would only have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they might not have other illnesses which would be kind of confounding the picture. But there could be others who might have eating disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, emotionally unstable personality disorder, for example. So it's a question of teasing out the various bits. And obviously, you know, the more complex it is, the more difficult it can be to diagnose. We're actually after getting a voice note in here, so I might go to that first. (laughs) 
Diana, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for raising awareness on mental health. Um, something that I really struggle with is feeling scared of myself a lot of the time because I have no control over my emotions. My emotions can be very unpredictable. Um, I can get extremely excited over the most mundane things in life or the smallest trigger can send me into a depressive episode. That's exactly what you were saying, Narkin, that like those, those highs and those lows... You know, like, who usually is the first to, to notice the problem then? The person with the disorder or the people around them? Particularly if, like, that, that voice note, there is these extremes of highs and lows. Very often with the depression side of things, the person themselves may notice it to begin with. Okay. Um, because we can be aware of depression ourselves. With the high highs of it, the hypomania, the mania, very often the person doesn't realise that it's happening. We call that loss of insight. And that can make it quite difficult to manage, particularly for family to approach it because the person themselves may not see a problem. And I mean, as you mentioned earlier on, you know, there is still a stigma attached to to mental illness. Mm -hmm. So even if the person does recognise it, they may not be terribly willing to seek help. And that, you know, is is, is really important to try to get uh, get the problem addressed and get the, the, the situation assessed as quickly as possible because it may be bipolar affective disorder or it may not be. But whatever it happens to be, it's important to try to identify it. Like how bad can it get if it isn't caught early and treated? I suppose in terms of the low side of it, I mean, at its very worst, people can become psychotic when we mm-hmm. talk about the delusions and the hallucinations. Um, and then obviously, you know, you could be faced with the tragedy of self-harm or suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and when someone is high, again, they can do all sorts of reckless things, put themselves in debt, put themselves at risk with maybe sexually promiscuous behaviour. And that's the whole raft of, of things like social embarrassment, um, breakdown of relationships, lo- loss of jobs. So, very often people kind of sort of think, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to be slightly manic all the time? It really wouldn't because it has a huge impact on your life. Mm-hmm. And the longer it goes on and the more severe it gets, the greater that impact. And that is why it's important to address these things early and address them properly mm-hmm. with specialists. We've got a, another message in here. Hi, Anna. Having a relative of bipolar disorder is really difficult for all family members, including the person who suffers from it. In my experience, when my relative was on their meds, there was an element of relief for the immediate family. Days, weeks and months would pass without an episode and everything would be fine. However, there was always an element of unease and worry and anxiety underlying because we never knew if today was going to be the day that our bubble would, of normality would, bur- would burst. The hardest part of being a family member is the frustration that there were situations where nothing you did was helping. You tried to comfort, console or calm, but it seemed like whatever you did, you couldn't fix the situation. You constantly feel like you need to be prepared for an episode because they could blindside you. And I suppose, Larkin, that's a massive thing for the people surrounding the person with bipolar disorder. Like, how do they approach it? What what should they be doing? Or maybe what should they not be doing if, if they suspect something may be wrong? I, I mean, I think this really typifies the, the how mental illness doesn't just affect the person, it affects those around them and, the, and their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the most important things is to link in with the treating team, for example, and to have a relapse prevention plan in place. Identify early warning signs, know who to contact if there beca- if a problem arises. So who is that first person they should be contacting? So in, in terms of when the disorder first becomes apparent or you think it might be becoming apparent, the general practitioner is usually the first person and they will refer the individual then on to a specialist mental health team with a consultant psychiatrist and various other disciplines. We refer to a multidisciplinary approach. So you would have community nurses, social workers, occupational therapists, psychologists and so on. So, I mean, treatment of this 
disorder is multifaceted, really. So your your last person who, who left that note uh, mentioned about medication. And medication, of course, forms a very important part of the treatment. Um, and usually we try to use mood stabilizers um, because they try to keep the person on, on an even keel for want mm-hmm. of a better expression. And you might remember Arlene mentioned the antidepressants, but of course mm-hmm. they could put her up. And that's one of the difficulties with bipolar, of course. You want to maintain somebody at a normal level without pushing them up or pushing them down. Um, and the difficulty with medication in psychiatry is that no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. So what works for you mightn't work for me. The dose that works for you mightn't work for me. So it's a question of tailoring it to the individual. And that can take a bit of time. One of the difficulties we have with medication is when people feel well, they think they don't need it anymore. Yes. And they may stop it. Now, of course, medication isn't the answer to everything and someone can still become unwell while on medication. But the idea would be that it reduces the number of relapses or reduces the severity. And also having a multidisciplinary team approach means you can spot the warning signs more quickly Mm -hmm. and and more easily. And like what else might be needed then for treatment aside from medication? So obviously we have the medication, as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. but then very often people will need other therapies. And the most common one would be cognitive behavioural therapy. And that's usually done by a psychologist, but it could be done by any team member who's trained in the cognitive behavioural therapy techniques. Um, But depending on what the person needs, I mean, for example, an occupational therapist might be involved in terms of assessing their daily living. Um, You may liaise with the college counsellor with their consent if they're in college or maybe with the occupational therapy or occupational health department in in their job, again, with their consent. Um, You have a social worker who would ensure that they have all their entitlements. And in mental health, social workers have very different roles, so they may involve themselves in various therapies as well. So it's a very broad range of, of, of approaches to make mm-hmm. sure somebody gets a, for want of a better expression, holistic approach to treatment. Um, but the, it would also be important for the family members as well to stay linked in with the treating team. And many teams would, for example, have carers groups, mm-hmm. which will be useful. And then there are other supports somebody mentioned earlier on about things like AWARE and um, the College of Psychiatrists website, irishpsychiatry.ie. There's also the Royal College of Psychiatrists website. There's um, SHINE, for example. So there are a number of different groups Great. out there who can provide supports as well. Well, Dr. Larkin Markin, Martin, uh, President of the College of Psychiatrists of Ireland, thank you so much for taking the time to educate us and to shine a light on this. And of course, like you said, you can get uh, additional information or advice from irispsychiatry.ie and aware.ie. Now stay tuned because we are going to teach you how boiling the kettle can help you to get fitter. Welcome back to Supercharged. Now we're talking about simple things that you can add in to help your fitness. Many people don't know where to start and some people are currently doing nothing. So I have a simple fitness tip for the week to get you going. It is called Anagiri's Kettle Squats. It's very, very simple. Think about every time you boil the kettle. For a lot of people, it could be multiple times a day. But let's just say, we'll take, for example, three times a day. If you were to boil the kettle three times a day and you were to do 10 squats Every time the kettle is boiling, or maybe it's jumping jacks, push-ups, running in the spot, whatever you want. But if you were only to do 10, and if you were boiling the kettle three times, that's 30 a day. In seven days, that's 210. In a month, you could be doing over 800 squats or 800 jumping jacks or whatever it is. And if you did nothing else, you would see an improvement in your fitness level. So my challenge for you this week is to try it. I'm going to do it too. Let me know how you get on. You can contact us here uh, by emailing supercharged at rte.e or you can contact me as well on Instagram at Anna G. Cork. Now, the triple threat of flu, COVID and RSV viruses, it seems to be reducing, 
but they haven't gone away. So how can we avoid and manage these respiratory illnesses? Well, Dr. Stanley Miller is a consultant respiratory physician at the Matter Hospital and clinical lead for the Respiratory National Clinical Programme. And he is here to give us some valuable advice. Welcome to Supercharged. We are all ears because... I suppose a, a lot of people were talking about flu, COVID and RSV in, in the last few weeks and even months. Like how concerned are you, first of all, about the numbers of respiratory illnesses in circulation? Like what's the current situation? Firstly, thank you very much for the invitation to come today, uh, Anna. We're not out of the woods quite yet. Okay. Um, when we look at it, it's actually influenza and influenza A, that's the, the most predominant uh, virus at the minute. When we look at when the influenza peaked, it was just the last week of December, first week of, of January. Mm-hmm. When we talk about RSV, it actually peaked mid-November and COVID's just been bumbling along. Mm-hmm. It's there, hasn't gone away. Unfortunately. Um, no, <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually, when we look at that, um, influenza, as I say, is still the predominant virus. There's the other viruses creeping through again, the viruses that cause the common cold, adenovirus, rhinovirus. And also, you know, getting colds and getting uh, infections, that it's not just about viruses. There's bacteria there as well. So mm-hmm. we have to be, be, be conscious of those. And there's one particular bacteria, Streptococcus pneumoniae, or the pneumococcus, mm-hmm. that actually, particularly in those over 65, can cause some problems in relation to pneumonia and things like mm-hmm. that. Even the words themselves, like those names, they can, they can frighten people, they mm-hmm. can scare people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important that while we're hearing about it, it's about practically knowing how we can support our immune and respiratory Mm. systems. Just, you know, either to avoid them ideally or otherwise to manage them. So, you know, what would your advice be there? Right, well, the good news is there's definitely things we can do to put us in the best position. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm all ears. (laughs) I'm taking notes. (laughs) The first thing I'm going to mention is vaccinations. Okay. Okay. Now, influenza vaccine, um, that's something that the over 65 should be thinking about, Mm -hmm. those that are pregnant, those with long-term health conditions. And also healthcare workers. And where can you get the, the flu vaccine? It's, a, it's a, a vaccine you get on an annual basis, so every year. So your GP or your local pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Then can can a, people still get that now? Yes. Okay. And that'll be going up until sort of April time. Now, okay. for children, there had been a nasal vaccine. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that's not being uh, provided anymore. Um, the COVID vaccine, we should all be thinking of that. And one of the ways to, to, to check uh, or to book in for an appointment is to go on to the HSE website. And then there's this, there's a, there is a vaccine against that bacteria I was talking about, mm-hmm. the pneumococcus or streptococcus pneumoniae. Well, who should be getting that? Well, it should be the over 65s. And again, those with long-term health conditions. Now, that vaccine is slightly different in the sense that it's given every five years mm-hmm. rather than... Uh, annually. And I suppose aside from the vaccinations then, what are the other practical approaches that people can take to, to manage? Well, if you've got an, already got a respiratory um, disease, taking your medications regularly and as prescribed almost goes without saying, but sometimes uh, uh, you know, it, 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 can be, it can be an issue. And vitamin D can actually be yeah, quite good. Th- there's something about us all living well mm-hmm. and nutrition. And eating a healthy diet, because we know if someone's underweight or someone's overweight, they don't do as well if they've got respiratory problems. Mm-hmm. And then the vitamin D story. Well, historically, we thought, oh, vitamin C, that's the vitamin we need to take for yeah. immune systems. Unfortunately not. Vitamin C, it helps. It's an antioxidant and it helps us absorb iron. But it's vitamin D that's the vitamin that helps wow. our immune system. And where can we get vitamin D? Well, oily fish, red meat, liver, egg yolks, fortified foods, mushrooms, something as simple as eating cornflakes 
or another cereal that's fortified with fortified milk every morning is already getting you on the, the right way in relation to vitamin D. And then you, you can take supplements. I was going to uh, say, because some people think, well, vitamin D comes in the sun. I'm getting out going for my walk every day. But this time of year, there isn't vitamin D necessarily in the sun. So possibly a supplement is necessary. A supplement. But as I say, there's those other food sources. Mm-hmm. Mushrooms, for those of you who perhaps oh. don't uh, you want to go with plant-based options, mushrooms have some vitamin D. Um, you know, you need, yes, you need the sun, but you need to have the vitamin D yeah. in your system because when the vitamin D is in your skin, then the scun, sun helps to convert it into its uh, okay. active form. So there's that side of living well, nutrition, but we need to keep active mm-hmm. because if we don't use our muscles, we lose our muscles and that includes our respiratory muscles. So we need everything. It, it. We it's need great. everything uh, in good condition. Mm-hmm. Smoking, smoking cessation. For those of you, it's, it's still not, not too late, still near the, the beginning of the year and still not too late to, to stop smoking. Just to think about supports that are there. There's a website, www.quit.ie, and people Mm -hmm. can look up that website, can arrange a face-to-face appointment or get support online or over the phone. Mm -hmm. And then there's something about empowering people to learn about their underlying respiratory problems if they have them. Um, And I'd just like to point people out to two websites, www.copd.ie, for those with COPD, and www.asthma.ie, for those with asthma. And so what advice would you give then if someone has, like I say, caught a respiratory illness? What should they be doing? What are the, the steps and what are the first and main steps? Well, the first thing is to give yourself a chance. Stay at home, rest, keep really well hydrated and eat well. Can I ask... Why keep really well hydrated? Because you often hear that. But why, why is that? Is it because you're sweating more? Or what's the reason behind There's it? a little bit of that. So you, there's what we call insensible losses. So you, you perhaps are losing a little bit of, uh, of water. Mm-hmm. But when your immune system is trying to fight infections, viral infections, bacterial infections, it needs energy and it needs water. Mm-hmm. So keeping well hydrated just keeps your body working well. And actually, not just eating well, but perhaps eating a little bit more than you normally would to get the extra calories in just to That's help the immune system. That's music to my ears. Giving yourself the opportunity <laughs> to eat more, great. And when I said rest, I don't mean absolute rest. You still need to maintain some light activity just to keep the muscles, keep the muscles working. Interestingly, the vitamin D story, it's good for our immune system, but when we've already got infection, taking vitamin D doesn't necessarily improve the outcome mm-hmm. uh, relating uh, to the infection. We can take paracetamol and ibuprofen uh, if we've got temperatures. And then if our symptoms are persisting or worsening, then perhaps it's time to contact your GP. But you don't always have to contact your GP. Going back to those websites for COPD and asthma, copd.ie, asthma.ie, they'll give you some interesting numbers in relation to advice lines and you can get tips uh, from nurses on those advice lines. Some patients with asthma or COPD may well have a rescue pack of medications and those with asthma might have an asthma action plan or those with COPD might have a self-management plan that they can refer to and give them tips about the, the, the next points. For those patients with underlying COPD and asthma and persisting symptoms, their GP might refer them to one of our new integrated uh, hubs uh, in the community, integrated care hubs uh, in the community. And that's where someone like me, I'm a consultant in the matter, but I'm also a consultant in CH09. So I'm an integrated care consultant working both in the hospital, but in these integrated care hubs that are closer to everyone's home. If... COVID had been diagnosed and the GP feels that the symptoms aren't going away, there are some COVID clinics 
both for respiratory and also for long COVID. Needless to say, if there's concerning symptoms and your GP's concerned, you might be referred to the emergency department or if things if there's no other option and you feel that you or a loved one is particularly unwell, there may be no option but to, to ring an ambulance and, and go into the emergency department. Dr. Stanley Miller, thank you very much for coming in today and giving us all that practical help and advice. Of course, if you do want to hear that, you can listen back to the show on rt.ie forward slash supercharge. Much appreciated, Stanley. Thank, thank you, you very much. Now, we had a lot of response to last week's item on incontinence and women's health physiotherapist Elizabeth Cullerton Quinn, I believe we may be able to get her on the phone. She's the Assistant Professor of Physiotherapy at Trinity College and she was one of the people that we got in t- that got in touch with us. Elizabeth, hello, are you there? I am, Hello. Anna, how are you? How are you doing? Thank you very much for <laughs> jumping on a call with us. You are have you um, a very important, I suppose, piece of, of information that you want to let people know when it comes to incontinence and sports people. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I think um, it was fantastic to hear the piece last week and especially the bit when you were saying that it's treatable because that's a really important message to get out there for mm-hmm. everyone. And um, what people probably don't realise is that it's actually more common in athletes, sportswomen, than it is in the non-athletic population. So, you know, we're talking about young adolescents or we're talking about, um, you know, young athletes Mm -hmm. um, and sportswomen. um, And, you know, it's more common in those that are elite or have long hours of training and high impact. And we, are, we, we conducted some research over the last couple of years and we looked at the elite um, players that we have in with our county camogie and county ladies Gaelic football. Oh. And with the respondents, we found that one in two or 50% appear to have some form of bladder leakage, some form of young incontinence during sport. Um, and we really want to now find out, you know, when it's happening to them, how they're managing it, you know, what effect it's having on them. Do they know this treatment? You know, have they talked about it? So we're actually at the minute, we're, we're looking to recruit for our, our second bit of the research. So we'll be sending a message out to county players who played in the last three years, county, um, if they'd like to talk to us, you know, one-to-one, very confidential, because mm-hmm. as you were saying last week, it's it is, is one of the embarrassing, yes. it's very sensitive, yeah. So we're looking to talk to them just on, online, you know, um, face-to-face, just one-to-one chat about 10 or 15 minutes just to so they can give us a bit more information so we can build up the information and hopefully then we'll be able to get some resource organised. And where um, can yeah. players contact if they do want to get in touch um, with you with this? Yeah, sure. Well, they can get me by my email. So it's C-U-L-L-I-T-O-E mm-hmm. and so that's colito at tcd.ie and also I'll, I'll, I'll be sending out a message I think the, the, the LGFA have been very supportive in the Camogie Association and I can send out messages as well and there's a link where if people want to leave me their email mm-hmm. we can get in touch as well because I think it's really important that athletes know that um, it's not just them yeah. and that that there's help and that we can maybe get some you know information out about it and you know, help them, you know, find ways to, to manage it and treat it because one of the early studies that was done on runners and athletes showed that the ones that showed up early in their sport were the ones that were more likely to show up then around 
childbirth and have, you know, having the first children, they were the early presenters. Mm-hmm. So it is important that kind of people know that there's help yeah. out there. And, and the early detection, not, I would yeah. imagine, is key as well, because the earlier that you can kind of, I suppose, acknowledge that it's there, then the earlier you can get help and that you can actually, you know, prevent it from, from getting worse. And again, exactly. it's just, it's a one-to-one confidential chat just to discuss totally. about when it may happen, how they manage it and if they've spoken to anyone or potentially been treated. So again, that email is colito at tcd.ie. That's C-U-L-L-I-T-O-E at tcd.ie. Elizabeth Collathan Quinn, thank you very much for jumping on and telling us about that. And hopefully you will get lots of people that will reply to you and that you can continue on in those studies. Supercharged with Ali Geary on RTE Radio 1. Time now to turn to some health news. Health and medical writer Danielle Barron is back with us with some of the stories that have been catching her attention. Danielle, I saw this first story myself during the week that ants might be able to smell cancer. Yeah, this is like I've got a real mixed bag for you this week, Anna. Um, And this first one is a really kind of out there study. But German researchers did actually manage to train ants to sniff out cancer. It sounds really bizarre. Yeah. But look, we know that fact is often stranger than fiction Definitely. and the marvels of modern medicine. Um, the ants were able to differentiate between the smell of urine from healthy mice and then from mice with cancerous tumours. So the way they do these studies is they use sugar to train the ants. You know, they they put the sugar with the urine from mm-hmm. the mice with the cancerous tumours. When they took away the sugar, the ants could still identify the urine of the mice with the cancer. So this was really promising. They've stressed it's a long way off, but they seem really excited about this development, saying it could be um, used as a fast, inexpensive, non-invasive tool for detecting cancer. We know with cancer that earlier detection is everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lots of cancers develop without much in the way of obvious symptoms. And we've seen dogs being able to do this to a point. But mm-hmm. in this study, the ants were trained really quickly and the design of the study was really praised widely by the scientific community. So there's, there's actually a buzz about this and it looks quite promising. Well, from ants to loyalty cards. So I believe loyalty cards could help with earlier detection of ovarian cancer cases as well. Yeah, now this one, like it's a bit big brother, isn't it? I mean, we know our loyalty cards. They kind of know us better than ourselves. Like mm-hmm. they know our patterns. And when we how. remember to use them. Yes, well, I, I'm a, I'm the queen of the loyalty cards. I have no <laughs> loyalty. I have so many loyalty cards. But um, I, I know that the shops obviously use them to track our buying patterns. But this study carried out in the UK, it was actually called the Cancer Loyalty Card Study. And they did it specifically in, in 300 women. And they found that pain and indigestion medicine um, purchases were much higher in women who were subsequently diagnosed with ovarian cancer compared to women who didn't have it. And they could see this change in activity in their buying up to eight months before their diagnosis. So, you know, it's a way that this huge like wealth of data via our loyalty cards is being used for actually improving our population health and could really help in the earlier detection of lots of different diseases, not just cancer. I mean, just it just shows I'm just bewildered here that between loyalty cards and ants is just, you know, there's a lot to take in. But as you said, once they're once they're positive um, things, then that's all good. OK, well, like there's yeah. also research that shows arguments between married couples could slow their body's ability to heal. Now, there's arguments being stopped in kitchens and cars all over the country right now. This that it slows yeah. their body's ability to heal. 
Yeah, this is crazy, but I mean, I, it doesn't apply to me because I never fight with my husband. Of course, I don't know about none you, of us do. Well, that's because I'm of his right, no. so I don't need to fight with him. But that's yeah, another story. Yeah, dream. But, <laughs> I hope uh, he's this listening. Study, <laughs> this study says that what they called cynical and negative communication in marriage affects um, spouses' mental, but also their physical health. So um, it was actually a study carried out back in 2005, but there's a new analysis and they, they, they basically proved the original findings that couples under stress with these negative conversations, they had these raised blood markers for inflammation and they even showed that wounds were slower to heal by a day for every argument. So wow. I mean, it's, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's pretty stunning. But And know, did the size of the argument matter? Like, was it who took out the bins or did, like, was the bigger the argument, <laughs> the slower the healing process? Oh God, well, I mean, most arguments are quite silly, aren't they? And, well, in my house anyway, it is the bins. But um, no, these uh, these studies are quite funny because like it, it, they single out married couples. I assume the same thing would happen if you were fighting with anyone, you know, someone at yeah. work or a friend. It makes and, like, sense though because when everything avoid. isn't going on, like often when you are, I suppose, arguing with somebody and like there's a stress response and you're not feeling right, you know, you're almost, your systems can become discombobulated. So it makes sense that everything 100%. would slow down. 100%. But then I wonder, like, what do you do? Do you just avoid conflict in your life completely? We'd all love to do that, but I don't think it's very realistic. Yeah, definitely not realistic. We're not yeah. I think there's people are in the country no. that are going, that's not like, some people yeah. love a good argument as well. You know, I know people <laughs> just love a good argument to get it out of their system that's, and they can kind of get yeah. out of the bad mood and they're fine and they move on. Um, yeah. The next story, it seems like, it does really seem like, I guess, every week that we're getting more and more confirmation that exercise, despite the fact that a lot of people mightn't like it, it does help with some form of disease. And I think this week you you were, I suppose, researching the whole idea that it can actually slow the progression of Parkinson's disease. Yeah, there was a really um, nice story this week about um, a guy up in Belfast and he's 56, diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's and he actually took up CrossFit um, and his neurologist was able to dial down his medication. His symptoms actually almost disappeared. So there's lots of research to back this up. This just wasn't a, a one-off or an anecdotal report. You know that research has shown that you have to do about two and a half hours of high intensity exercise. Now, it isn't gentle walking. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that will always help. But like this was high intensity exercise. Mm-hmm. So it actually slows the progression of Parkinson's. You know, it's very progressive. Um, disease and for lots of people it's reversed their symptoms and allowed them to even reduce their dependence on medication so um, yeah it really does work and mm-hmm. there's a lots when I looked into it there's lots of specific exercise programs and classes run for people with Parkinson's around Ireland oh, like great. 12,000 people with Parkinson's in Ireland so yeah. it's a big cohort and it's definitely something worth looking into for someone who gets mm-hmm. a diagnosis and you know another thing I was at a thing years ago and there was the Parkinson's choir there because another issue of Parkinson's is the loss of voice control. And so there's lots of research to show that regular singing and your breathing Great. techniques can help with that. So we see lots of choirs springing up specifically for people with Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's a, it's a um, when you're in an environment with other people, the social aspect, and you're connecting with people that can understand what you're going through. That in itself can, can also help, I would imagine. Um, moving on to TikTok. God, TikTok. Uh, you've been keeping an eye on TikTok and I suppose you, you have to call them dodgy health advice that's often been given out and you have something for us. I think she may have gone. We may have dropped the line there for a second, but basically with TikTok, there was this trend. And when I say trend, because everybody seemed to be jumping on the trend, this idea that you should basically be using salt water to flush out your system. Now, 
I think a lot of dietitians are highly worried about this because they felt that it might make you go to the bathroom, but you could end up dangerously dehydrated. And, you know, it was being used as this idea to flush out toxins, but also that you might be short term weight loss. Um, I do believe Danielle is back with us um, and it's ringing right now. So hopefully she's going to be back on. I'm sure she'll have more information about this than I do. But I mean, certainly from reading about it, it's not something that I will be doing. Danielle, are you back with us? You Just might be able to shed more light. Cleanse? Yes, the salt water can cleanse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can hear you perfectly fine. Drop there. No, it's no problem. Yeah, We're um, very yeah, worrying so, to hear so, this. Yeah, TikTok totally freaks me out. You know, these videos seem to be taken as gospel and I've seen uh, salt water flush results hashtag six million views. So oh my God. people do seem to be kind of obsessed with the idea of this salt water flush saying that it might um, help you lose weight or um, that it can clean out your intestines. Now, like, I mean, we don't need it. Our bodies detox Exactly. We've learned all this, you know, before. And the other thing is it might make you go to the bathroom, which we all do eventually, but you could end up dangerously dehydrated. You know, you're losing salts as well as water and you definitely won't lose any real weight. You know, the scales might change, but it's not real yeah, weight. Exactly. And it's so also short term. don't need any help. Yeah, my advice would be just take your health advice from a doctor, not a TikToker. There's definitely place to go for advice. And lastly, and, and quickly then with uh, intermittent fasting is, you know, a lot of people are talking about it as an effective way to lose weight. But there is a new study that's saying that may, may not be the case. Yeah, I found this interesting. We've heard about intermittent fasting for years. Have mm-hmm. you, Anna? Like, I mean, is that something you've come across? Um, yeah, and I, I do I do believe there are merits in it, but I do think it's, it's yeah. the correct way. And I think. I've seen... I've seen lots of research, you know, saying that it does work. Um, basically, the idea of intermittent fasting is you eat all your meals within a certain window. Mm-hmm. So say you eat all your meals within eight hours and then you fast for about 16. But this study was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association. That's one of the biggest medical journals. And it found that it's actually just the amount of food you ate, like, you know, how the size of your meals mm-hmm. and how often you ate had a bigger impact on weight gain than any anything to do with the time window. So mm-hmm. they said that restricting eating to certain times of the day just may not work for people yeah. who want to lose weight in the long term. Um, so yeah, the study is kind of poo-pooed that idea. Well, I will of, say of in its defence though, the one good thing about it is that it allows your body time to digest so that if you have a period of eating and a period of, 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 of fasting that gives your digestive system a bit more time to, I suppose, to work through yeah, all the food true. you have consumed. So I will, I will advocate for it in this. But you know, we'll have to come back to that one again because that is very interesting. And like you said, that journal is very well respected. Daniel Barron, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on with us again and filling us in on all the latest health stories. Now, if you've been affected by anything on the show this evening and if you want to find out more information, you can visit aware.ie and you can listen back to this show at rte.ie forward slash supercharge or on the RTE radio player app, along with all the other episodes of Supercharge. Thank you to all of our guests this evening and thank you to all of you for your messages and your questions coming in. Thanks to my brilliant production team here, John, Louise, Mahi and Harry on sound. You can get in touch with me via email rte.ie. So, well, supercharged at rt.ie maybe a better one to get us on or you can reach out to me on Instagram at Anna G. Cork. So until next Sunday evening, mind yourself and mind each other. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Supercharged with Anna Geary is an Ojo production for RTE Radio 1.